Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, as you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 17, I want to say thank you to all the folks that showed up yesterday. We had a work day here at church and just wanted to tell you thank you uh, for being here. You helped us get a lot of things accomplished and we appreciate you. And also just want to give a quick, just personal commercial for an event that's coming up in a few weeks. We as a church are going to the Jumbo Shrimp Game watching baseball, but it's more than that. It's an opportunity for us to fellowship. You know, we have two services. There's a service that's happening right now, and then at 9 o'clock there's another service that happens over in the uh, sanctuary, and uh, sometimes it's difficult for us to, uh, to get to know each other and to spend time fellowshipping. It's a great opportunity uh, to go have fun and watch some baseball, but to get to know your church family. So uh, you'll see some information about that at the end of the service, and today's the last day you can get tickets for that, and it's a really good value if you look at how much it would cost you and your family to go. So if you have any questions, go out to the table and see somebody about that. Today's the last day to get those. First Samuel chapter 17 is where we are. And uh, so we are going to continue our Bible study this morning through the life of David as documented in First and Second Samuel. First Samuel, that's the ninth book in the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel. Somebody told me last week I missed Exodus there. So thank you for noticing that, all right? So there's Exodus. So First Samuel is where we're going to be and, um, again this morning. And we're looking at the most famous story connected to the life of David this morning and David and Goliath. In fact... Uh, this story, uh, the uh, the names in this story are kind of part, of, still part of the cultural lexicon today. Uh, when talking about underdog stories, you'll hear people uh, reference David and Goliath, and uh, you know some of the we love underdog stories, right? And that's I think that's the reason why this story has become so well known, not just in the church but outside the church. We love underdog stories. Some of the most successful, memorable movies in our generations were underdog. Stories, right? We love movies like the ones that some of you grew up watching, Rocky, right? Or Hoosiers, or The Bad News Bears, Karate Kid. How many Karate Kid fans do we have here today? One of my favorites is Rudy, right? Somebody just randomly yelled at Jaws in the first service. I didn't think about that as an underdog story, but I guess it's right. <clears throat> in my generation growing up, we liked movies like Mighty Ducks or The Little Giants or Napoleon Dynamite would be a uh, underdog story. My kids have underdog stories. Kung Fu Panda. I kind of like that movie, right? That's just to name a few, all right? What do all those movies have in common? They're all stories about the underdog. They're all stories about a person or a team that's like the least likely to succeed and they're facing a seemingly unbeatable obstacle or opponent, but they beat the odds. They win the day. They're carried off the field as the unexpected hero. We love movies like that, don't we? And here's why I think we love movies like that, because we watch a movie like that, we watch the credits roll, and we walk out of the theater kind of thinking that we can be a hero like that, kind of dreaming of being a hero like that. And if we're not careful, we'll turn from the silver screen into the pages of Scripture and look at stories like this one found in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and kind of have that same mindset. And a lot of people do that, and by doing that, miss the main point of this incredible real-life underdog story and think that this is mainly teaching us, hey, uh, like lessons like, hey, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. In fact, that actually comes from, that, that, that uh, saying comes from this story. Right? People think that that's a, a main lesson that you learn from this. Or don't stop believing, right? Don't stop believing. You can take down your giants just like David did. And we can, wa- we can read this story and take it in kind of like we take in Karate Kid, right? And leave it thinking that maybe I can be a hero. But the point of this story is not to inspire us to run out of here and to run into the world trying to be a hero. This story is ultimately meant to reveal to us our great need for a hero to rescue us. 
and how we need to live in light of that rescue. Here's the big idea of this text this morning. As we're going to read a story here about God saving His people, about God saving the Israelites from a real great enemy through an unlikely deliverer, it's pointing us to a greater story of God saving all humanity from our ultimate, deliver, from our ultimate enemy through an unlikely deliverer. That's the big idea. So stand with your Bibles open. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm just going to read three verses, and then we're going to, kind of like we did last week, we're going to go back and we're going to summarize some, we're going to talk about some, we're going to read some, but we'll just read three verses in our scripture reading time. So 1 Samuel, let's turn to uh, verse 45. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that, God, that there is a God in Israel, and all the, this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Would you have a seat as I pray? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you would help us today uh, to, for some, maybe for the first time, to see the ultimate meaning of this text. But for those of us who know you, that our hearts would be reminded that our greatest enemy has been slain. That our greatest enemy was slain 2,000 years ago at Calvary. We're thankful for salvation this morning, and I pray that our hearts would swell up with greater gratitude for the battle that you've won for us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for being our great deliverer. And I pray that this text would make our hearts be more affectionate towards you because of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you three big truths from this passage this morning that I believe the uh, author is uh, intending to communicate to us. And this is the first one this morning. Here's the first big truth. We are unable to defeat our ultimate enemy. We are unable to defeat our ultimate enemy. So go back to verse 1 and let's walk through this. Verses 1 through 3 is setting the scene for this story. We find the Israelites right here squaring off against uh, a nation who has become their arch nemesis in this period of time in Israel's history. It's the Philistines. The Philistines have settled along the coast and they're wanting to move more inland and take more territory in the land that God has promised His people. And how are they going to do that? Through a valley, through a vulnerable spot. It's a mountainous area and so they want to take more territory through a valley called Allah. And so Israel has set up their military on one side of that valley to stop them from advancing inland and the Philistines have uh, camped out their army on the other side of the valley and these two armies are ready for battle. Now, this is a problem that should have been already solved uh, a long time ago, generations ago, because God had commanded the Israelites to drive the Philistines out of the promised land, but they failed to do that. And we believe a reason for their failures probably had to do with how intimidating and powerful the Philistines were. They had a very impressive, very highly resourced military. On the timeline of human history, you may understand this or know this, but on the timeline of human history, you're beginning to get in what's called the Iron Age right here. And the Philistines were one of the first nations to master the production of bronze and iron. And they produced some extremely high-tech weaponry for that day. And they were a very intimidating nation that you didn't want to mess with. But Israel's forced to defend themselves as the Philistines are trying to advance, and so they're squaring off for battle in the Valley of Allah. And so it's already a major mismatch on paper. You know, the Israelites are nowhere nearly as advanced, militarily speaking, as the Philistines. Um, and then it gets worse for the Israelites as the Philistines send out their secret weapon, which is an actual living giant named Goliath. 
And here at the beginning of chapter 17, Goliath struts out into view. Verses 4 through 7 gives us his stats. So he's listed as being uh, literally nine and a half feet tall. His feet are 19 inches uh, long. So it's like two you know, size 10 men's tennis shoes uh, put side by side or put together, right? Big feet. His armor weighed 125 pounds, which would probably... It will be about the weight of David, all right? His, uh, the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. He had a shield bearer uh, who carried a big shield, all right? So, by the way, nobody ever included the little shield bearer in the flannel graph stories growing up. I don't remember the shield bearer, all right? If you're a Bible teacher, give the shield bearer some love, all right? Talk about the shield bearer. Because the shield bearer, it says, is carrying a shield that covers the length of his body. It, it gives you some perspective on the size of Goliath. Um, so, it, what the text is doing is it's clearly showing us that this Philistine named Goliath was an absolute monster of a warrior. Powerful, intimidating, he's a killing machine. And so, uh, in, in verses 8 through 10, he issues this challenge to the nation of Israel. So, see him standing there in your mind, he's an intimidating presence, he's huge, he's massive, he's scary. And then, imagine this booming voice that comes out of this giant that echoes across the valley of Allah. And look what he says in verse 8. It says, he stood up and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you not servants of Saul, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel to this day, or this day, give me a man that we may fight together. All right, so now what this is called in the ancient world was a military approach called representative warfare. When you had one person from either army who would fight on behalf of the nation. In those days, they were fighting on behalf of not just the nation, but on behalf of their god or their gods. And so the whole contest would be decided by this one battle. And so we have the nation of Israel that's representing the one true God, Yahweh. We have Goliath who's representing a pantheon of Philistine gods. And what they're saying is, hey, we can settle this one-on-one, mano-a-mano, right? Best man wins instead of having this full-fledged battle. And it's a type of military battle here that is, is reminding us of something. And this is, important. this is an important note to make right here, right? The way this is shaking down. This battle here is uh, it, it's, it's a battle in which one man is fighting for the many. Right? Remember that through this entire text. This is a battle, representative warfare, in which one man is going to be fighting on behalf of the many. That's what's happening in this passage. All right. So when I use my sanctified imagination, I can imagine that when Goliath comes out and he yells this across the valley of Allah, that the Philistine side, the army just erupts with this, you know, they're going ahead and they're, they're giving a victory cry. You know, they've won this battle. It's in the bag, right? College football season is about to kick off. Anybody excited about that? All right. All right. Three people are excited about college football season. We're in church. I'll rely on a little bit. I know you're excited. Uh, many of you. And so, as we're getting close to college football season, you know, think about the sounds that are going to emanate out of a stadium like Ben Hill Griffin Stadium at the opening season of the first Gators game or whoever you like. Just imagine the crowd erupting with cheers. That's what I imagine is coming from, is emanating from the, from the mountainside that the Philistine army is camped out on. They knew that they had this thing in the bag. And so, what is Israel's response to this? Well, they should have just shrugged their shoulders. I mean, they're the covenant people of God. They should be thinking, hey, that's cute, Goliath of Gath. That was a great speech. You know, that was something else to, to hear you say all that. But you've got no idea who you're messing with. We're God's people. You're messing with Yahweh himself. And you're no match for our God. But that's not their response. 
Instead of being courageous, verse 11 tells us when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, it says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now notice that it... Notice that it mentions Saul there before Israel, right? That reminds us, like, who should have been leading the way here for the Israelites? Who should have been rallying the truth troops? Who should have been speaking truth and should have been speaking the promises of God and been speaking words of faith and hope into the hearts of the men of Israel? It should have been their king. It should have been King Saul. But there's a problem. Last week, what did we learn back in chapter 16? We learned that the Spirit of God has departed from him because of his sin, because of self-centeredness, because of his disobedience, which means Israel does not have a king on the throne of their nation who is consumed and concerned primarily about God's glory. Saul is primarily concerned about Saul's glory. It's all about Saul. He's not going to risk his life fighting some big killing machine, some goon out there named Goliath. He's going to sit in his tent probably sketching out the next monument that he wants to build for himself. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll see that he did that. He built a monument for himself and then stood back and looked at it and said, man, that looks really, really good. Very selfish guy. In verse 16, it says, uh, 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand uh, morning and evening. So he comes out for 40 days. 40 days he's taunting once in the morning, once in the evening. 80 times over the course of 40 days this giant shouts across the valley these, these taunts and drags the name of God through the mud. And every day what do you get? Every time what do you get from Israel? The response is fear. The response is spinelessness, is cowardice, is anxiousness, is hopelessness, is despair, is retreat. And I think what Samuel is communicating by detailing the significant amount of time that passes, 40 days, is that if nobody has stepped out from the army of Israel to step up against this giant, no, nobody's going to step out. Nobody's going to step up and, and fight him. Especially when you consider that their own mighty king Saul is gripped by all the same cowardly feelings that they're gripped by. If Saul, who's a head taller than everybody else, if Saul, who's the greatest warrior in the army of Israel, is too cowardly to step up, nobody else is going to step up. And here's the point of all of this. I want us to focus our attention on the big truths in this text. Here's the point of all of this. The reality that the biblical author is trying to help us see all these years later is that the nation of Israel lacked every single resource to defeat this enemy. This is something that they absolutely cannot, absolutely will not accomplish in their own power. It's clear in the way that this narrative unpacks, right, that they are stuck. That they are headed towards what looks like inevitable defeat. And they can do nothing in their power to stop it in their own strength. And this is the part of the story that's meant to point to a, a greater reality in our life. And that's the fact that in our own power, we lack the resources to fight against our ultimate enemy, don't we? That's who Goliath is ultimately pointing to. He's pointing to our greater enemy in this text. Like, think about what Goliath's doing. He's defying God. He's trying to destroy the people of God. Who does that sound like to you? What's the answer? Satan. That's right. Like, usually the right answer in church is Jesus. But there it was Satan, all right? But it, so it sounds like the devil. It sounds like the evil one. Ever since the beginning, the devil, like Goliath, has been trying to destroy us, trying to tempt us, trying to cut us off from God. And the bad news of the Bible is he did that. Our forefather, our foremother, Adam and Eve, they gave in to temptation of the evil one. And all of humanity has followed suit. In our sins, we've been separated from God. In our sins, we, we've, we all have been touched by the brokenness of our sins. We've all experienced the effect of sin. 
And the lesson we learn from this story and the point of the story at this point is that no matter who we are, no matter how tough we are, no matter how smart we are, no matter how much moral good behavior we stitch together, we face a great enemy we are no match for. That we cannot overcome. And it's Satan, and it's sin, and it's death, and it's hell. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. That means don't answer out loud. Let me ask you a rhetorical question this morning. Who do you identify with most in this story? In the story of David and Goliath, who do you identify with most? Who do you think you're supposed to be in this story? We naturally tend to pitch ourselves as the hero. When I was watching, you know, movies when I was young, like we, I liked Batman when I was little. So when I watched a cartoon of Batman, when I watched a movie of Batman, after that was over, I liked to pretend that I was Batman. I didn't like run around the house pretending I was Joker. I didn't even run around the house pretending I was Robin. I put on the cape and the mask and pretended as a seven-year-old kid that I was Batman. We instinctively identify that way, don't we? It's human nature to identify with the champion. When me and my brothers were little, we, we, we liked wrestling, wrestling, professional wrestling. My dad's a Baptist preacher, and he liked wrestling, so he passed it on to us. He took us down to the Coliseum all the time, watching wrestling matches. And every Saturday morning, we were 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, me and my brothers watched Saturday morning wrestling. Anybody, was anybody doing that in the 80s? Was it just me, all right? Watching Saturday morning wrestling. And then after wrestling was over, we hated to see it end, but you know what? We did? It did, the wrestling didn't end. We, we just turned our beds into a, a wrestling ring. And every one of us wanted to be the champion. Like, every one of us wanted to be the good guy. I always wanted to be Hulk Hogan. I didn't want to be Ted DiBiase. He's a bad guy. I didn't want to be Rowdy Roddy Piper. I didn't want to be Sergeant Slotty. Nobody wants to be stinking honky-tonk man. I want to be Dusty Rhodes. I want to be Hulk Hogan. I want to be the good guy. I want to be Ultimate Warrior. And we would argue with each other. No, I get to be the good guy. I get to be the champion, which means in the late 80s in the Revis household, wrestling in our house usually wasn't fake. It turned into a real fight. It's human nature to run to the hero in the story and to identify with the champion. We don't want to think about ourselves as bad. We don't want to think about ourselves as weak. But listen to me this morning. Christianity begins in someone's life with the acknowledgement that there is nothing heroic in me. It begins with realizing that we aren't the hero, that we're not the rescuer. We're the ones in need of being rescued. We are not David in this story. I am not David in this story. And before we run to the hero of this story and find ways, which I think you can, to identify with David and learn from his life because he's got a nature just like ours, we first got to remember who we primarily are represented by in this story. Our main point, our point of identification is Israel and Saul, not David. We've got way more in common with Saul, naturally, and way more in common with Israel, naturally, and way more in common with Eliab than we do David. We failed to seek and obey God like Saul in our sin. We cower in fear and, and, and drift towards naturally in our sin unfaithfulness like Israel. Amen. And like Israel, we desperately need somebody to step out and to represent us. So never forget that. Never forget that the moral of this very popular story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, is not that I need to run out of here and be braver like David. That isn't what we should first think when we come to this story. It's not I need to be braver. It's I need a savior. That's what I should see. Who can deliver me and push back evil on my behalf. And so thankfully, we get to turn to the good news in this text. That we serve a God who fights for us. We serve a God who provides a champion for us. We serve a God who fights for his people and for his glory. 
So the second truth we see in this story is, number two, God saves us by sending us an unlikely deliverer. So think how for 40 days, Goliath is taunting them, 40 days of trash talking, 40 days of them being petrified and frozen in fear. And then somebody from the group finally steps up. And it's none other than who we were introduced to last week, young David. And so Samuel spills a lot of ink in this really long chapter uh, showing us that David is a very unlikely deliverer. He is not the champion that the Israelites were expecting. And just like in the last chapter, there's this emphasis on how externally David doesn't look like he has what it takes, that he, that he has the qualifications to step into the role that God's calling him to. He's presented again in verse 14 as the youngest of his brothers. In fact, he's, he's so young, he, he's not even old enough to enter into, into battle. Later on, we'll see a conversation between him and Saul. And the implication there is that David's not of military age. Like we know military age in those days in Israel was 20 years old. So that's why we know that he, at this point in his life, he's in his teens. So he's presented as this young guy. We also find David in, where is he at? Right here in this, in this passage as he's introduced again in, first, in, in chapter 17. He's out in the pasture. He's introduced, again, as a, as a shepherd, as a lowly shepherd, right? So there's a lot of lessons that we can learn here uh, from David's life because he knows he's going to be the next king. He knows he's the anointed one to sit on the throne of the, as king in the nation of Israel. But what is he doing right here? He's, he's, he's not focused as much on that as much as he is on being faithful to the task that God's called him to right now. He's not running directly to the palace demanding that God give him that seat on the throne. He is being faithful to the small task that God's calling him to right now. So he's out in the pasture. He's shepherding. That's where God's preparing him. He's spending time. We know this during this time. uh, Going back and forth from the palace. Kind of as a part-time musician playing the harp for Saul. We read about that at the end of chapter uh, 16. And so David's just continuing to show ordinary faithfulness in these ordinary tasks. He's an ordinary shepherd boy. He's presented again like this in this chapter. And we've got to remember, being a shepherd was not a desirable job. It wasn't a flashy job. Right? It, it, I know like our ideas of sheep, you know, I, the cartoony version, and I'm sure if you've got sheep that they're sweet, gentle, nice little animals. But we know this, that sheep are kind of dumb. Amen. Sheep are dirty. Sheep are very difficult. And in those days, it was like a very lowly task to be out in that field and to be serving as a shepherd. It's not like he's out, you know, looking after like a herd of like horses, like majestic animals, majestic creatures. Is there any animal in the animal kingdom, like, is there any lower animal to be looking after than a bunch of sheep? Maybe a cat. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't, say, don't email me. Don't email me. I have a cat. It's just a joke. Let's not take ourselves so seriously. But he's also described here as being an errand runner. Shepherd, young guy, an errand runner. Look at verse 17. His dad says, David, get in here. I need you to go check on your brothers for me. They're out on the battlefield. I need you to take some cheese and some crackers to them. Give me a report on how they're doing. I heard one preacher say that he's one pepperoni away right here from being a pizza delivery boy. (laughs) So very, very lowly tasks. But no complaining, just yes, sir. He's humble. There's a servant's heart right here. This is there's a lesson right here to learn that if you ever want to be a leader. That's God's able to use in effective ways for His glory in the kingdom. You've got to learn how to be a servant in the lowliest of tasks. 
And so we learn that right here. And these details remind us of great character that we see in David. But the, these details are also here meaning, and here's the big idea, the, to communicate to us that there's nothing about young David that makes him seem like a likely hero in Israel. He's young, heart-playing, part-time musician at the palace, shepherd boy from Bethlehem, running errands for his dad. Doesn't sound like the description of a great warrior who's primed and ready to jump into the ring and represent the nation of Israel against this uh, powerful, formidable opponent called Goliath. The point of this and the point of the way that Samuel is narrating this and sharing the story is that David is not a likely champion. The Israelites are not expecting someone to be their champion that looks like David. So let's pick up the story in verse 22. David's commissioned by his father to go to the battle lines and he obeys. And it says, And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers as he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine Goliath of Gath, Philistine um, Goliath by name, came up from the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. That's a key phrase right there. And David heard him. So David hears the taunts of Goliath, hears him blaspheming the name of God. And this holy anger, this righteous indignation rises up in his heart and compels him to take action. And I want you to notice the contrast between David's response and the response of Israel and the response of Saul. I mean, they, they've been nothing but cowardly up to this point, right? But here's David demonstrating like his, his character and his example. It's like a light shining through that darkness of cowardice that, that we've seen. It's overwhelming in this text from the side of Israel. And he comes out with this radical confidence, this radical courage. And I love verse 26. David is standing there listening to all these men on, in, in the army of Israel. And they're talking fearfully about this giant. And they're kind of talking. They're gabbing back and forth about the reward that will be for the person that can go out and defeat uh, the giant. And the reward is a bunch of money from the king. And you get to marry his daughter. You get to marry the princess. You don't have to pay a dime of tax for the rest of your life. It's a pretty good payoff. And the men... As, as he's sitting there listening to him, finally David responds to these men. And look at verse 26. David says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? And listen to what he calls Goliath. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of a living God? I love that. Amen. Everybody else that day looked at Goliath and are like, Hey, have you seen that giant? Like everyone is, is fascinated by him. Everyone is fearful of him. I mean, have you, have you seen the giant and they're terrified? David looks at the giant and what does he say? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Why does he say it that way? Because David is seeing Goliath with different eyes. He's seeing him through a lens of faith. He's seeing Goliath as someone who's not worth being scared of because he's not one of God's chosen people. He's not one of God's covenant people. He's an idolater. He's an enemy of God. He's publicly defying the God of the army of Israel. And so to David, he's already a dead man walking. On that day, you got an entire army on Israel's side who see a giant. And when they see this giant, they see an unbeatable foe. But when David looks at the giant, he sees this giant in light of the cosmic size of God. Amen. And it puts things into perspective. Because David's heart is consumed with a big view of God and a big view of His promises and a big view of His power and a big view of His presence. And so David's like, what's the reward for the guy who wins this thing? What's the spoils? That's all he's focused on. What goes to the winner? Like, that's how confident he is that God's going to defend his glory. What reward's coming to the guy? I'm about to step out and do this. What, what's the reward again? I was just curious what it's going to be. So knowing 
He's got the living God on his side and nobody is a match for the one true God. David steps up. And the drama builds as word gets back to King Saul that somebody is up for the challenge. And in verse 33, Saul basically kind of sons him. All right, look at verse 33. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, David's son, come here for a second, sit down. What are you doing? I mean, look at yourself. I mean, I, look, look at yourself. This guy's killed more people. You know, the number of people he, he's killed outnumbers the number of years you've been on this earth. Like, number of days you've been on this earth. Like, what are you doing? I can find 10,000 men in the army of Israel that are more qualified than you. Just stick to your heart playing, little guy. And this is not for you. Just go, kind of go back to the pasture where you were at before. But David refuses to relent. He starts rehearsing his credentials right here. I love this. He says, he goes, hey, I might be a small guy, Saul, but I need you to listen to me. I'm actually a pretty fearsome shepherd. I'm a, I'm a fearsome shepherd. Let me tell you a couple stories because there's a few times where some lions and some bears and these crazy wild creatures in, the, in nature came and tried to attack the sheep that I was in charge of. And I, I didn't just kill them. I grabbed them by the beard and I killed them. I don't even know what that means. But it sounds pretty intense. It sounds pretty fierce. But that's not ultimately what David needs Saul to hear. David's point is not, hey, hey, Saul, no, slow down. I've acquired a particular set of skills out in the pasture. And I will find this giant and I will kill this giant. That's not his point. That's not his point. His point is this. And this is, it's so sad that, David can't, that, that Saul can't see this. And he, and he tells us uh, what it is in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Your servant has struck down. Goes, see if you catch right here the true source of David's confidence. You ready? Your, sor- your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so what he's saying here is something that tragically and sadly Saul can't see. David is saying, hey, I got some skills. Like I've been in some brawls. I've killed some wild animals. I've done some damage. But Saul, that's not what it's about. That's not the key to the victory right here. That's why all of y'all are standing over here scared because you're missing what we should be focused on and that's this, that the key to victory will not be external talents, talents, will not be external resources, will not be an external set of skills. God will certainly use that, but the key to my victory will be my faith and my trust in the living God who promised us a long time ago that this land is ours and He's going to fight for us, He's going to deliver us and I believe in Him and I trust in Him. My confidence is completely in Him that He's going to deliver me from the hand of that enemy over there. David's not saying, hey, Saul, calm down. I've got this. He's saying, Saul, God's always had this. And he's going to protect us and he's going to deliver us. And I stand on that promise. Well, I'm not sure how much confidence that Saul had in David, but he sends him out. He says, okay, fine. And he agrees to send him out there, but he, before he goes, and there's a point to this, Saul tries to put his armor on David, which is interesting. Isn't that interesting? Saul, king, mighty king of Israel. Saul isn't willing to go to the battle himself, but he's willing to rent out his armor for free to this little shepherd boy. What a leader, right? But it's a pretty comical scene. It's obvious that the armor doesn't fit. 
You know, Saul was much larger than David. We had that work day yesterday, and I, I brought Benson and Max up here to, to, to do a little work. You know, so Max, I was going to say worked, but, you know, I use that term loosely. He played and worked and then played a little bit and worked the best that an eight-year-old boy can. And so after we were done, there was a hose that people were hosing themselves off with back here, and Max comes up, and he's just drenched from head to toe with water. He thought it would be a great idea not to just wash his arms and his legs off, but his entire body and his clothes and everything with water, right? And so in the truck, all I had was some, some of my gym clothes. And so I got him in the back and put those gym clothes on him, those gym shorts on him, and we just had to laugh. It looked absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I pulled the drawstring as tight as it would go, and it was like nowhere near his waist. And only like Max could, he just stood there like all of those, those clothes just falling off and sagging off of him. And he said, really? Really? And as I was thinking about this morning, reviewing my notes, I'm like, that's That's David. Like, he's in, these, he's in this armor, and he's basically looking at Saul going, Really, Saul? Like, it's, it's completely swallowed him up, and he's standing there and goes, You know what? I don't need any of this. Like, I'll just take what I got. I got my confidence in God. I've got my stick. I've got a slingshot, and I've got five smooth stones from the creek. That's all that I need. By the way, if somebody ever tells you what those five stones mean, and they say that they know for sure what they mean, they don't. No one knows what those five, no one knows what that represents. Some are like, it means missions. and a bit. No, we don't know that. Or it's, a, it's, a, it's like a rock, and it's like our life, and we're putting the sling of God, and we're thrown out into the world. Nobody knows what those stones, they mean stones. It just means that they're stones. The rocks symbolize rocks, all right? But there is a point to all of this, if we see the bigger picture, that God through Samuel is showing us how unlikely David is as the champion. Think about the Philistine giant Goliath. He's this high-tech, got nearly impenetrable armor, bronze and iron weapons. He's an actual giant. He's a warrior. And from earthly eyes, he is an unbeatable, high-tech killing machine. David's like a no-tech warrior. He's walking out completely exposed. All he has is primitive tools, primitive at that time, which is a sling, and stones and a stick. Well, after this massive buildup, this dramatic buildup, the, the battle finally kicks off in verse 40. And David's approaching the battlefield. He's approaching the giant. This is where the soundtrack kicks in, okay? And so, although this is the moment that we've been all been waiting for, right? This is one of our favorite stories in all of the Bible. It actually ends really, really quickly once we get to the battle. It's quite anticlimactic. It's like when you order that, that big boxing match on pay-per-view and you paid a bunch of money and you invited a bunch of your friends over and you got the popcorn popped and you got the, co- the food cooked and you got everybody over there and you're ready to settle in and you turn it on and it's like first round, first minute, knockout, night, night, game over, everybody go home. It ends really, really quick. But I love it. Look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And just like that, it's over. Just like that, the tables are turned. Just like that, the roars that were emanating, the victory roars from the Philistine side, transfer over to the Israelite side. And the mountainside erupts with cheers from the Israelite army. Why? Because an unlikely unlikely deliverer, a little shepherd boy from a no-name town, 
called Bethlehem, did what Saul couldn't do, did what the Israelites could not do for themselves. He was filled by the Spirit of God. He had a passion for the glory of God, had confidence in the deliverance of God, and courageously enters the battle on behalf of this nation and slays a high-tech giant with primitive tools. And according to the terms of this kind of battle, remember, representative warfare, the one man is fighting for the many. This is really important in this text to grasp. Can't miss that. What that means is although Saul and the Israelites didn't lift a finger to contribute to victory, they had David's victory credited to their account. If you've been a Christian, even for a minute, the lights on your dashboard and your heart should be, should be lighting up. This should be pointing you to something else. This should be pointing us forward to another place. And it's really not a place, it's a person, Jesus Christ. David is a figure that points us ultimately forward to Christ. His life, his work on the field of the valley of Allah that day foreshadows the ultimate unlikely deliverer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the work he came to accomplish. Think about David. He was the anointed one in his time for the salvation of his people. Jesus Christ is the true anointed one who comes for the salvation of all people everywhere for all time. David delivered his people from physical death, foreshadowing a coming deliverer, an ultimate perfect champion, Jesus, who will save us all, who trust in him from eternal death. In the Gospels, what do we find? Jesus serving his people like David in the most unlikely fashion. Think about it. What kind of God would come to earth from heaven through the womb of a virgin girl? He's dismissed by the religious leaders because he didn't look the part of a, like the part of the Messiah. He was dismissed by many because he had a subpar background. Remember that question that came out of the mouth of Nathaniel? When Nathaniel heard about Jesus and he said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He even doubted him because of his background. But praise God, something good, unexpected, unlikely came out of Nazareth. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfectly good life in our place and died a cruel death on the cross that we deserve to die. And through His sacrificial death on the cross, the Son of David, the greater deliverer, slayed our greatest enemy, which is sin, forever. There's a detail in this narrative that points to the permanence of that victory over sin on the cross. You go back to the story of David and Goliath, there's a detail there as we're remembering that this is foreshadowing Jesus' great work on the cross that points to to Jesus' defeat of our great enemy is permanent. Like it's final. There's a finality to it. You say, where is that detail? It's the part where David walks over and cuts off Goliath's head. And then in verse 54, it says that David took the head of Goliath and ran through the city of Jerusalem with that head. All right, we... That's not a detail we usually share in the kids' versions, right? They left that out of the Veggie Tales Dave and the Giant Pickle episode. We don't usually share that at bedtime story, do we? And then, kids, David sawed off Goliath's head and he took the decapitated head of this giant and ran through the streets of Jerusalem with it. Night, night, kids. Sleep tight. Have good dreams. But there's something really important right here. Because if you've studied Bible history at all, and if you haven't, just track with me just for a second. Because it is strange that he runs back into Jerusalem with that severed head of the giant. And here's why. Because at this point in Israel's history, the Jebusites, a pagan people, are occupying Jerusalem. They haven't been driven out. And so at this point, why is David running into Jerusalem with Goliath's severed head? Because, and later, he knows something. And we know that he knows this because later his king will see this. He knows that God's presence is ultimately going to be established in Jerusalem. 
in the ark and then in the temple that his son will build. And most scholars believe that most likely David ran back to Jerusalem and ran back to Mount Moriah, the famous place that Abraham offered up Isaac and God provided a substitute, which is in Jerusalem. In fact, that's the Temple Mount. And some scholars suggest that what David did is he took that head of Goliath and he stood up and triumphed on Mount Moriah with it. He stood there on that hill with the severed head of that great enemy as foreshadowing that not far from that hill, a thousand years later, Jesus on the cross would shed His blood on the cross, defeating our greatest giant, sin and Satan and death on that hill and will hold up His crucified body as evidence that our greatest enemy has been slain. Forever. Permanently. And then He raises from the dead, validating that great victory. And the glorious news of the gospel is that for any one of us in this room, if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus, here it is, Jesus' victory gets credited to your account. That's what this story is pointing us to. One man fought for the many, and his name is Jesus Christ. But listen this morning, it it is more than just theologically agreeing with this. It is more than just, you know, knowing... That this is a legal transaction, right? That Christ's righteousness actually gets imputed to us. That's a wonderful truth we celebrate. We know it's much more than a legal transaction, that this is personal, right? I mean, what has God delivered you from this morning? Are you thankful that if you've trusted in Christ, that you've been freed from the sin debt that once was yours? Aren't you grateful that the, in Christ, the crushing load of guilt and shame and despair has been lifted off of your shoulders? I mean, has Jesus delivered anybody this morning from sin, from addictions, from diseases? And the more we trust in Him, the more we walk with Him, the more gradually He's freeing us and delivering us from the operating power of sin in our lives. And He's going to restore one day to our lives all that sin stole away. It's personal. Jesus fights for us. The one man, the unlikely deliverer, He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, let me say this. In closing... I have a third point, but it's going to be very brief. I know preachers sometimes make promises like that they can't keep, including the one that I'm talk, that's talking to you right now. But it's an important point. And here it is. Christ's courage in the ultimate battle gives us courage in our daily battles. Christ's courage in the ultimate battle gives us courage in our daily battles. In verses 52 and 53, we see David's victory over Goliath. And what do we see that it does? It emboldens and empowers and fills the Israelites who are just shaking in their boots, fills them with a courage and a confidence, and they begin to run after those Philistines. You see a a shift in them, a change in their courage. They begin to push back and pursue their enemies. And so similarly, Christ's victory gives us courage to face the challenges that we might face. Like, let me give you a few examples. In Christ, we no longer, because of the battle that God has won, the ultimate battle, we no longer have to be afraid and fear death. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Because of a loved one in your life that has received news that is beginning to make you think about that. Maybe you've received news in your own life about, maybe it's connected with disease or or cancer. Listen, the... This is a wonderful truth, a wonderful reality that is true for you if you're in Christ Jesus. The work that your champion accomplished on the cross 
means that you can look disease and cancer in the face. And yes, you pray that God will rid you of that and God can deliver us from that. And we can have, we can have testimony time right now and you can hear about all kinds of people who have been healed from sickness. And we pray that that will happen. But you can also live with this durable hope and faith and joy in the middle of that sickness, in the middle of that pain, because in Christ, the only disease that could have destroyed you for eternity has forever been healed in Christ Jesus. In Christ, my sins are forgiven. In Christ, i got a forever home in heaven. And because that is true, I can face the smaller giants in my life, even physical death, because the greater giant of eternal death has been slain forever. In Christ, you no longer have to be fearful about your future flying out of control. Some of you are there this morning. Some of you don't know what this week holds. You're anxious and you feel helpless about something in your life and about what will happen in the coming weeks or months. Maybe it has to do with your health. Maybe it has to do with something with relationships. Maybe it has to do with something financial. You've got something so much more secure in Christ than a bank account. You need to know that this morning. You've got a heavenly inheritance stored up for you in heaven. You have a heavenly father this morning. The great, the, the great enemy of sin and separation from God has been destroyed. You've got access forever to a relationship with a heavenly father. You are his kid who loves you and will provide you with everything that you need. Rest in that victory this morning. You can face those smaller giants by remembering that, that greater giant has been slain. And the last thing is this. In Christ... We no longer have to be paralyzed by the fear of the disapproval of other people. I wonder how many days and moments of your life have been wasted with you worried about what people think about you. Consumed with the approval or the disapproval of other people. I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but in verses 30, beginning in verse 38, you see David go to the battle lines and he's trying to talk with his brothers and his brothers shoo him away. They taunt him. They insult him. They make accusations about him that are false. And as you follow Jesus, I promise you, you're going to have people, often from your past, maybe family members, maybe close friends, who maybe will bring up your past and question that question whether or not God could use somebody like you. And the enemy will throw those same accusations at you that you're not good enough. And when that happens, remember the great victory that's been won for you. In those moments, remind yourself, no, I'm not good enough, but Jesus Christ was good enough on my behalf. He died in my place. And because of the cleansing fount of His blood, my slate has been washed eternally clean. And man, He specializes in using weak people like me for His glory. Understand that if you're in Christ, because of the victory Christ won on the cross, that this story of David and Goliath points to, you've got the favor of God on you, believer. And the only person whose opinion ultimately matters, which is God, approves of you in Christ Jesus. Accepts you in Christ Jesus. He loves you. You know, He doesn't just love you. He likes you. You're His child. And that's forever true. See how it works? Christ's courage in the ultimate battle gives us courage in our daily battles. So church, the big lesson from David and Goliath is not to muster up a bunch of courage in your own strength to face down your enemies. Your enemies, they are strong. The message is, oh my goodness, what a Savior. Oh my goodness, what a deliverer who has fought and defeated our enemy on our behalf and through his victory, we have been empowered to live a life of victory, purpose, and courage without being paralyzed by fear. Praise God this morning for the unlikely deliverer, Jesus Christ, the one man who fought for the many.
Let's pray.